I'm Abby Strauss, and welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. Jonathan Stewart is a professor of psychiatry and geriatric medicine at the University of South Florida. Dr. Stewart, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We hear so much about depression in the elderly, and it's a rather major problem, but I have to ask you, how common is it really? Well, it's really a tremendous problem. Now, as is the case with just about any illness, depressions run the gamut from the relatively mild to the severe and life-threatening. The big concern in the elderly is that a far greater proportion of depressions are life-threatening. Probably up to 20% of people over 65 will suffer a serious depression at some point in their life. And when you say life-threatening, do you mean going to suicide or just adding to other complications in their lives? Well, it's an interesting question. In younger people, absolutely suicide. Suicide is very common. It's the thing that we worry the most about in depression in younger people. In the elderly, you absolutely can't trivialize suicide. It's very common. In fact, people over 65 have about twice the incidence of suicide completion and than the general population. But in the elderly, that's really the tip of the iceberg. While suicides are a concern, probably the greater concern is all the morbidity and the, the excess death that's associated with complications of the depression. People with depression, older people with depression, tend to get ill very easily. They lose weight. Older people tend to lose a lot more weight and get malnourished a lot more quickly than equally depressed younger people. And probably the twin demons of depression in the elderly are malnutrition and all the consequences of bed rest. You see, it's common in severe depressions for people to lose energy, especially so with older people. When older people take to bed, though, bad things happen. They, they get weak. They get what we call deconditioned. When they do get out of bed, they're much higher risk for falls. And from you know, just disuse, they tend to have weaker muscles tend to have accelerated osteoporosis, so if they do have a fall, they're more likely to fracture something, and it's usually a serious fracture, like a hip fracture. Older people that spend inordinate periods of time in bed also are at high risk for developing phlebitis, deep venous thrombosis, they're at risk for developing constipation, urinary retention, a whole host of different things. The other big concern about depression in older people is it's probably, it's certainly the most common treatable cause of rehabilitation failure, and it's probably the most common cause across the board of rehabilitation failure. This is something that we see again and again in people that are getting cardiac rehabilitation or rehabilitation after a stroke or after an amputation or after a hip fracture. The group that has a depression do very, very poorly. They don't have the energy or the motivation for rehab. They tend to have very poor outcomes, so they're much higher risk for becoming institutionalized, becoming dependent, not being able to return home. Is there a set of criteria or, or warning signs that are more common in the elderly regarding depression, such as changes in enzyme levels or changes in other metabolic issues? Well, honestly, there are some biological changes that correlate with depression, but in terms of an actual laboratory test for mood disorders, we're really not at that point for younger people or older people. It still comes down to being a clinical diagnosis. Does it occur more commonly in people who've had prior depressions when they were younger? Absolutely. There are a lot of risk factors for development of depression. In general, depressions get worse 
as people age, they get more complicated, a little more difficult to treat, more likely to be recurrent. And there are a lot of risk factors. Probably the major risk factors for depression will include disabling illnesses, major changes in lifestyle, widowerhood, but not widowhood. Men seem to do a lot worse than women do in that situation. So women are less likely to suffer depression after losing a spouse than men? That's correct. At least this cohort, the people that are older at this point, people that were born in the 20s and 30s, for example, they tend to be that way. But in terms of all those things, though, there are you know, all these risk factors. By far, though, the most salient risk factor and the one that really trumps everything else is the previous history of depression. People with a history of depression are much, much more likely to develop a depression later in life than people that haven't had a history. Do we also see manifestations of the depression in such things as increased alcohol use? We often do. That's probably more of an issue with younger people than with older people. There's not a lot of de novo alcohol abuse in older people. There's been some controversy about that over the years. There was a notion that some people late in life would become alcoholics. Usually it's heavy drinkers that just accelerate their pattern, and that may correlate more with just social isolation, maybe widowerhood, maybe widowhood. But more, it seems to cry more with social isolation than with depression. One often just hears about people who can't accept the fact that they're retired, that they're older, that a spouse has died, they don't have money or whatever it is. How does one differentiate a phase of life sadness versus a real biologically treatable depression? Well, it's a good question. Obviously, stress has come up at any phase of the life cycle. There are probably more stresses as one gets older. Typically, though, older people will tend to cope better with those stressors because they're a normal part of the life cycle. People will have brief periods of sadness, maybe depressed mood, what we call an adjustment disorder. Those are normal kind of things, and that's sort of what you would expect with any major change or any major difficulty in life. Depression is really a different animal, though. Depression tends to have a life of its own. Lay people tend to think of depression just in terms of sadness, almost as though depression were a fancier word for sadness. It's really a lot more than that. With major change in life, major stressors, people can have some brief depressive symptoms and they'll certainly be sad. Many people will be sad. Depression really changes how people think in a fundamental sense. So depression may or may not be associated with sadness in older people. In fact, it's remarkable that many older people, maybe one-third to one-half of them, don't have that typical sadness that anybody would think about when we're talking about depression. People will have what Aaron Beck referred to as cognitive symptoms. These aren't cognitive symptoms like memory problems. These are really attitude symptoms. The fundamental way to think about depression is that depression, the disease depression, really changes the way you view the world. It's almost like having a filter. It makes everything negative. Negative view of the past, the self, the world, the future. So people tend to have negative life review. They don't look back at good times. They gloss over the good times and the successes. They mostly focus on failures. They tend to be overly guilty. They can focus on guilt or really have pathological guilt where they're blaming themselves for things that they're obviously not responsible for. They tend to be hopeless. They tend to be pessimistic and gloomy and negative. They tend to be anhedonic, and that's a tremendously important symptom. That basically means that they will no longer be able to derive pleasure from things that were previously pleasurable. So you'll see people giving up hobbies, no longer enjoying socializing, no longer enjoying 
playing with the grandchildren or visiting with neighbors or with family. There tends to be a lot of hopelessness about the future as well. That's the real core of depression. Now, the other big cluster of symptoms that serious depressions tend to be associated with are what we call vegetative symptoms. And these are the, the body-type symptoms. Basically include loss of energy, loss of appetite, and certain kinds of sleep disturbances. Now, those vegetative symptoms are the ones that doctors tend to think about, and they do tend to predict a good response to antidepressant medications as well as some other things that we can do. But they're not always, always there. The thing that's always there are these attitude symptoms, that negative filter, and that's what really defines the depression. It's especially important for older people, too, because, as I mentioned, a lot of older people just won't endorse feeling sad or depressed or blue. You mean they hide it? I'm sorry? That they hide those feelings? You know, that's an interesting question. I think in some cases, people will really go out of their way to avoid being labeled as having a psychiatric illness. This is probably a cohort effect. It probably has a lot to do with the way that the people that are old now in 2008 were raised. People that grew up in those days, the 1920s and 30s and 40s, tends to be stoic. And that was really before the era when we really understood psychiatric illness. People in those days were, were terrified of mental illness. And many of them still go around with this concept that most people are normal and a few people are severely mentally ill, and that's not them. And they'll tend to avoid endorsing any kind of psychiatric symptoms. They won't want to talk about that. So there's a cultural or a little historical element here that's very critical to the diagnosis. I think it really is, and I think all of us in geriatrics see this again and again. But uh, truthfully, I don't think that's the whole story. There just seems to be something different about older people, and probably about one-third to one-half of older people literally do not feel sad when they feel depressed. And when you speak to them about depression, they, they don't have a clue. They think you're missing the boat. They think you don't, that you've misunderstood them. They say, I can't be depressed, Doc, because I'm not sad or I have nothing to be depressed about or I don't feel like crying. It's not like that at all. They will, when pressed, they will tell you about the gloominess and the negativism and the not enjoying things. They'll usually speak about some of the vegetative symptoms like loss of interest in eating, loss of appetite, and they'll often speak about poor energy. Now, sometimes the classic picture is when people have those attitude symptoms and some of the loss of energy and appetite, but they attribute it all to a medical illness. They may come in and say that the poor energy and the anhedonia and the gloominess and the wishing they were dead and the loss of appetite are all because of terrible shoulder pain and can't you do something about that. Or they may say that they feel like they're getting old, it's just a old age doc, or they may say they have a lack of pep, why can't you give me a vitamin B12 shot like my neighbor had. Those are typical things we say and it gets very tricky to number one, diagnose the depression, and number two, to explain to the patient why you're going to proceed with a course of antidepressants. Sometimes the early stages of dementia can be very similar to a depression, and there's a concept known as pseudo-dementia. Could you talk about that for a moment? Right. That's a, that's a common scenario that we see. The relationship between depression and dementia is really very complicated, and it goes in both directions. On the one hand, People with severe depressions, older people with severe depressions, even older people with mild to moderate depressions, will often develop some memory problems, concentration problems as a result of the depression itself. 
and that's called a pseudodementia. We used to feel that this was an important treatable cause of dementia. What would happen is a patient would come in complaining bitterly about their memory. You look closer, you'd find that a depression was there. You would treat the depression and things would get better. Now, that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that there seems to be a biological relationship, a complex one between mood disorders and many of the dementias, notably Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia. About 20 to 30 percent of people with either of those types of dementia will develop a real biological depression early in the course of illness. Now, you can debate about whether it's just a reaction to knowing that a dementia is developing, which is obviously a huge, huge change in a person's life and a huge stressor in people's life, or whether it's a biological thing related to some changes in oh, the cholinergic system, the serotonergic system, for example. It's a complicated relationship, but there seems to be that there as well. What it brings to us as clinicians is a question. Somebody comes in with evidence of depression and evidence of dementia. What do you do to sort it out? And truthfully, it's often more of an academic question than anything else. You see, for a pseudo-dementia, you would treat the depression aggressively. And for a, tr a true dementia with a secondary depression, with an associated depression like Alzheimer's disease with depression, you'll also want to treat the depression aggressively because it's an important predictor of poor quality of life, of institutionalization, of caregiver stress, a bunch of bad things. So you're really going to treat the same way. Now, the only other issue is about prognosis. You would figure that people with the pseudo-dementia would do a lot better, and they do seem to do better initially, but there's some longer-term studies that have been done that suggest that probably at least a large minority of those patients will eventually develop a true dementia. So the prognosis probably isn't that different either. There are so many different medications now available, so many different means to address a depression. Are there any real differences between the SSRIs and the old tricyclics and ECT and a lot of others? Right, there are a lot of differences out there. The way we approach it, obviously, I guess what you know, you and I have been focusing on today is differences in how depression looks in older people. Probably from a global standpoint, a public health standpoint, the most important issue is detection because older people present with unusual appearing depressions, depression without sadness, depression with physical complaints or memory complaints. They tend to be reluctant sometimes to speak about having a mental illness. People have a sense of nihilism about whether these things can be treated. Believe me, they can be treated. So I think the most important take-home point from today is detection. After that, the next step is to look at other treatable types, causes of depression, what we call secondary depression. The typical kind of things we worry about are medication reactions. There are a number of medications that can give, that can cause a depression. We worry about thyroid disease, adrenal disease. We mentioned dementias as being associated with depression. Certain malignancies can present that way. So a good thorough diagnostic workup is necessary. Should this treatment really be done by a psychiatrist, or can a non-psychiatrist adequately do this treatment? That's a, that's a, that's a difficult question. I think you know the, the, the fact of the matter is that the majority of antidepressants are prescribed by primary care physicians, by internists and family practitioners. And that's probably okay as an initial cut. There are some fairly simple to treat depressions out there. I'd be thinking more about depressions in younger people, where there's a lot less likely to be medical confounds. I'd think about the less severe depressions. Those things are probably reasonable for a, a, a generalist to treat. 
But when a depression isn't getting better with an adequate trial of a first antidepressant or when there are a lot of diagnostic questions, as is typical in, a, in an older patient with multiple illnesses, or when the consequences are becoming severe, when the patient develops delusions or suicidal ideation or has tremendous weight loss or severe loss of energy spending the day in bed or failing rehabilitation. I think those are more difficult depressions that really do need the expertise of a psychiatrist. Is there an estimate, is there a guideline as to how long these treatments need to be maintained? Okay, that's an important question. It's sometimes difficult to figure out what antidepressant medication is going to work. Once we think it, there, there are different ways to look at that. Certain types of depression seem to respond to certain medications. You know, we look at side effect profile. We look at whether the patient or a family member has responded to similar medications in the past. The important point here, though, as I think you're driving at, is that almost all the serious depressions in older people are recurrent. Thirty years ago, we were thinking that maybe one-third of depressions would recur. So the old-fashioned way of approaching this was to treat for about six months or so. At this point, 20 years later, 30 years later, a lot of research has been done, and we know that serious depressions, what we call major depressions, and people over 65 have over a 90% recurrence rate. So at this point, the the science is telling us that anybody over 60, 65 that has a serious major depression really needs lifelong treatment. And this is especially so if they've had depressions earlier on in their lives. Oh, absolutely. Even younger people have had a second or third episode of major depression. This is going to be a pattern. The nature of mood disorders in general, both bipolar illness and unipolar depression, is that they tend to be recurrent. They tend to be lifelong problems that need to be controlled. Now, we do better at controlling this than we do other lifelong illnesses like diabetes. We can keep people healthy and asymptomatic for their entire life but these do require lifelong preventive medication. So the proper treatment of depression in the elderly actually has a very good outcome. It's not really been studied whether the prognosis is better or worse in older people than in younger people. My experience is that older people tend to do very, very well. It can be a little bit more complicated to treat, but we can almost always get the person back to their old self. The prognosis is excellent. And depression is unique among any illness in medicine, really. It's one of the few illnesses where the more severe the symptoms, the better the prognosis. It's really remarkable to take a patient that's developed a severe life-threatening depression where they're nearly mute, they've lost 40 or 50 pounds, and they're basically in bed constantly, hardly moving, making them back to what they were before the depression happened. The prognosis for those serious depressions is wonderful. That's a wonderful note on which to end. Dr. John Stewart is a professor of psychiatry and geriatric medicine at the University of South Florida. We thank you very much. Hey, thank you. It's been a pleasure.